the lie that poetry tells is constant as the truth itself. Without the lies and the false beliefs, where would we be? Where would we be? Welcome to the State of the Theory podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm an India. And we are your theory doctors. Hello. Welcome back. We are now in week eight, and today we are going to talk about freedom of speech. Freedom of speech. Why why have we chosen this topic? This topic is always relevant. I think freedom of speech is a has been um, at the heart of a lot of debates online, certainly. Um, in a bunch of different spheres, you know, we talk about feminism and men's rights activists and freedom of speech, Gamergate, right? Um, but we are doing it now because Donald Trump has recently declared that his right to freedom of speech has been compromised by protesters and activists who have um, what he says is denying him the right to speak at rallies. And we're going to start with a discussion of, of Donald Trump and some of the, again. Yes, I mean, we should say at this point that Trump lies. Yes. He lies a lot. Yes. So sh- do you want to remind the audience about exactly what happened in Chicago? Yes, so in in Chicago last week, week before last, week before last. Trump had planned a rally in the center of the city, in a part of the city that is historically very progressive and democratic rather than Republican. Was it on the university campus? I think so, yeah. It was the University of Chicago campus. Mm. And um, he he had chosen this site, presumably Mm. for specific reasons. And um, we can talk more about that if we choose Mm. to Mm. later on. And then he planned this rally, publicized it, and then a number of activists, um, many connected with the Black Lives Matter movement, but it, it's bigger than that. The opposition to Trump, I think we we need to make it very clear, Donald Trump and his campaign have, have tried to pin all of these protests on Black Lives Matter activists, but it's bigger than Black Lives mm. Matter um, in a good way, mm. in the sense that there are a lot of people who oppose a lot of the rhetoric of Trump rallies and a lot of the activities that happen at Trump rallies um, for a variety of reasons. And they came together in Chicago um, to picket at a Trump rally. And it became clear that there was going to be a heightening of tensions and the potential for outbreaks of violence Mm. to occur if the rally went forward. Mm. And so the Trump campaign, citing a meeting that Trump had had supposedly, allegedly had with law enforcement officials in Chicago, decided to cancel his event. And then he came out and he said that his his right to freedom of speech had been compromised, he had been silenced, and that this was a violation of his rights. And it's important to say for the record that the law enforcement authorities in Chicago have come out and said that no such meeting took place. They did not recommend the the cancellation of the rally and so on. 
Exactly. And there were many, I mean, the, there were huge numbers of people on on either side, huge numbers of protesters and huge numbers of Trump supporters. And this was a, this was a big event. And many, many individual altercations and debates and conversations and and events happened yeah. here yeah. but there was never wide-scale rioting it wasn't certainly wasn't a, a violent yeah. protest on either side it was you know we're not talking about riots here we're talking about large groups of people getting together yeah. and and expressing certain political viewpoints and yeah. perspectives. And, and there's, I mean, you know, there's the potential for violence was there, but I think mm. that was all overshadowed mm. here mm. by Trump's statement that his freedom of speech mm. had been denied. Um, yes. Also, I think there, there were reports of scattered yeah. instances of violence, but most of the reports certainly I saw place all the violence after the announcement that the rally was cancelled rather than before. Yes. So in other words, what ended up happening was the organizers of the rally, the the people in charge of Trump and his his campaign, brought together these diametrically op- opposed groups of people, Trump supporters and Trump protesters, put them in a confined space and then summarily cancelled the rally and expected that people would just leave in an orderly fashion which or, or you know perhaps they didn't expect and they were ex- they expected something yes um more negative to happen or you know hoped yes. that something might happen what's interesting is of course trump is a presidential candidate so he is surrounded all the time by secret service hmm. and when the secret service are at work they are at work and this location will mm. have been scouted and secured mm. hours and days beforehand. Um, there will have been extensive planning mm. in terms of securing the space. So there was never the possibility of a riot mm. in the mm. way that we might think of of riots happening. Um, this was... This was a performance yeah. of of political difference at at a crossroads mm. where if we create the conditions mm. whereby disorder might be caused, we can therefore justify mm. any particular number of responses. Yes, um, which is a trend that Trump has followed at various points Mm. in this campaign. Do you want to say a bit more about the discourse of violence and what role it plays in Trump's rhetoric? Yeah, there's... We talked a little bit about this a few weeks ago when we talked about about fascism. And the violence that kind of appears in in the rhetoric of Trump's rallies and his, his... campaign agenda is a sort of hearkening back to a form of masculinity 
and reclaiming a particular kind of masculine identity that is focused on aggression. And Trump has has repeatedly used the the belief and the feeling of vulnerability and victimhood and helplessness that um, a, a certain demographic or set of demographics in the United States feel, um, particularly after the recession in, in 2008. Um, Loosely speaking, working class white. Yeah. Resentment. Yes. Mm. And there's, a, there's a, an attempt to reclaim a particular nostalgic identity mm. and that identity is one of aggression, mm. um, of, of punch first, mm. think later, mm. Um, the glorifying and idealizing of the schoolyard fight um, among boys, that that this is the American way. He's making these connections between um, individual masculine aggression and, and citizenship. And he says things like, oh, the protesters punch him for me, will you? Kick yeah. him for me, will you? Just get rid of him. Just get him out of here. Get him out of here. He also promises to pay for that for the defense if anyone is prosecuted for beating protesters up, yeah. which is, you know, direct financial incentive to violence. Yes. You were talking about um, Rachel Maddow's show. Yeah. So Rachel Maddow did this thing where she put together uh, almost a showreel of the various ways in which Trump has encouraged and incited violence at various rallies, you know, talking about punching and kicking and uh, not being afraid of hurting people mm. and um, talking about these others. The protesters are always the other people, those people, that that kind of person, um, and and the ways in which he talks about enjoying violence. He talks about enjoying um, his rallies because they are protesters who might be beaten up, who could be thrown off and, you know, punched and kicked and, and whatever. Um, there is also a wistfulness. You, you mentioned nostalgia earlier on. There's sort of nostalgic wistfulness about this previous time when America was great and American greatness rested partly on the ability to beat people up. Yeah, to defend brutally. yourself or to take matters into your own hands. And th both of those phrases are code for something specific, aren't they? Yes. What, what exactly is he hearkening back to? It's very much a racist ideology, mm. and there's ties as well to misogynist ideology. Mm. Yeah. Um, there's, it's interesting, the, the racist element has come through very strongly, mm. particularly because a lot of these protesters are Black Lives Matter protesters. But also there was the, the particularly disturbing video of the young black woman um, protester and the way she was treated at, at one of Trump's rallies. And so there's, there's also a, a, a sort of domestic violence element here as well mm. where um, women and, and particularly black women who yes. are so who are such a challenge to yes. this, masculine authority mm. are seen as being particularly threatening. Mm. In other words, Trump is using freedom of speech in two different ways, I think. On the one hand, he's citing the lack of freedom of speech, which stops him from having rallies, 
though it doesn't and it didn't. He chose to cancel it. Um, and he's also using freedom of speech in terms of his bravery and courage in being able to speak the truths that apparently everyone is thinking but people are too politically correct to say, i.e. racism and... Yes, the silent majority. The silent majority whose views have been denied um, and who are unable to say Hmm. what they wish to say, which is a violation of their First Amendment right. Yes, because the, the elite minority are policing freedom of speech and freedom of expression to such a great extent that the majority can't get their voice heard. That's it. That's the line that he's following. Yes. And when he's talking about the good old days where people could say and do what they wanted to, he is essentially talking about lynching, right? He's essentially talking about Deep South. Yes. KKK. Yes. Lynching. Lynching and violence and also the the violent derogatory language, Mm. being able to use... Um, cruel and offensive terms mm. about minorities, particularly black minorities, but mm. I don't think, mm. you know, they're That's not the only ones, no. you know. Um, and being able to say racist terms, mm. because that's a, you have a right to say racist words mm. about mm. people. Um, that's a part of this, too. And there's, I mean, that's that exists in the underworld of mm. the Internet mm-hmm. and has done... Hmm. forever I think Hmm. Um, as long as the internet has had comment boards Hmm. and forums there have been people expressing their right to say the n-word and Hmm. um, you know this is he's tapping into this this feeling of freedom Hmm. of speech having been violated because Hmm. we can't say racist terms or we can't hit people so how might we conceptualize freedom of speech within this discourse? Is freedom of speech still worth fighting for on the progressive side? Or is freedom of speech something that has been co-opted as part of a wider conservative movement to the point that it no longer has any value as a progressive idea? Yeah, well, I think, I mean, the most important thing here, and freedom of speech is, is evident in a number of different kind of contemporary context. So some of the current events in India, there's a freedom of speech element here. In the UK, particularly around feminism and um, who gets to speak for feminists, there's a question of of freedom of speech here. But I think it's really important that we talk about why freedom of speech is enshrined in the US Constitution and, and why it matters so much. And the historical context of freedom of speech is essentially, it was designed, and apologies for those of our listeners who already know this, and this is a a duh, obviously, moment, but the history of of freedom of speech is that it, it was designed to protect the rights of the citizen when the citizen criticized the state or the government. It was to protect the individual speaking out against the injustices of the state. And essentially, this is a mechanism by which the state watches itself. Mm. So when we talk about freedom of the press, Mm. this is the reason there is an ideal of a free press. Because the press is supposed to, as we talked about last week, ideally is supposed to be the watchdog of the state. Mm. And so 
individuals have a right yeah. to say what they want without fear of being arrested, held without charge, yeah. thrown into prison for speech acts. Yeah. And that is, you know, that that freedom, the fear of losing that freedom is yeah. filtered through tons of science fiction yeah. and dystopian literature from the 20th century. Yeah. There is a there's a very serious question here when we talk about about state surveillance, particularly on, on the internet, um, and freedom of speech. Um, so the, the purpose of freedom of speech, I think, hasn't gone away. Mm. But we forget mm. that that is what it is for. Mm. That is what the, the right to free speech means. Mm. Because that does matter. Yes. Um, but what's interesting, too, is the... The ideal of freedom of speech came about at a particular time in history, of mm. course. And it was developed during the Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment period when, as Foucault tells us and many other historians tell us, the modern state was consolidating itself and creating its ways of ordering and structuring itself. And the state was creating and individuals were creating within it a particular relationship between the citizen and the state. Mm. And this is a time we see Rousseau's... Mm. Um, social contract appear. This is the time that we see John Locke articulate um, his ideas about the relationship between man and government mm. and, of course, Hobbes's response. Mm. Um, these debates about how, how the citizen and the state interact mm. and what that relationship mm. should be like. And, of course, at the time, it, the citizen was a very particular person. It was a landowning white man with access to education and capital. And of course, there are groups and classes of middle class, you know, bourgeoisie professional men who are fighting for this right. Mm. But they are, it's very specific. The relationship is between them and the state mm. rather than every single individual person in the state. Mm. And so in the American context, of course, we have the creation of a constitution which allows these men the right to manage and run the government and vote. Mm. And they do so on behalf of their families. And in many cases, mm. they do so on behalf of the slaves that they own, mm. who are seen as being partial people, mm. you know, percentages of people. Mm. And the welfare of children and women and non-landowning people and black people are managed by these citizens mm. who have the right to vote and the right to freedom of speech. Mm. But then, of course, that changes. The The world is, is different. Democracies are different now because women can vote. Black mm. people can vote. Mm. Children can't vote, um, mm. which is, you know, a question about how democratic is society. Mm -hmm. But now the freedom to speak and the freedom to vote and the freedom to do all of these various things, own a gun, or um, what other freedoms do we have? Practice our religion. Mm. They're now dispersed among people mm. whose positions are not so clear-cut, who have different relationships to the state that are fundamentally less equal. Mm. Um, so even though electoral politics has been opened up and mm. broken open, the system of electoral politics itself wasn't designed for that kind of social organization. So we see people having to vote mm. 
in a democratic system, but in a system that doesn't necessarily give back to them what they give. So the idea of freedom of speech is for an individual. It's for an individual landowning white middle class mm. male voter. But what happens when freedom of speech is exercised by people who have different positions, yes. who have different different levels of power, whether that's yes. social capital or actual capital, mm. um, whose voices are seen to be more legitimate mm. or who have greater access to a public arena. Mm. Um, you know, a Black Lives Matter protester and Donald Trump are fundamentally not not the same yeah. in terms of their citizenship. Yes. So, you know, to say that that one can deny the freedom to speak of another, mm. you know, for us and for people who kind of understand this the same way that we do, this seems obvious. Mm. But the democratic discourse, the philosophical discourse around it, doesn't allow... Mm for that kind of understanding. Yes. So in this way, you know, absolutely freedom of speech in the way that, that we are able to conceptualize it does mm. not take into account mm. these kinds of social relations. Mm. I think that's very, very true and very well put. And there are, you know, loads and loads of examples in the recent past that we could turn to, you know, that we could talk about Charlie Hebdo, we could talk about the Danish cartoon, Stories we could mm -hmm. talk about um, the poppy burning stories in in Britain. We could talk about um, you mentioned JNU and the the student leader who was arrested for speaking out against the nation state. All of these examples raise similar questions about um, how best do we think about the right to speak as a fundamental right that applies equally to everyone when we know that social contexts determine how much my voice can be heard and how, how to what extent does freedom of speech mean anything when you are an individual anonymous protester faced against the might of Trump and his campaign. Um, I guess one story that came up recently in terms of raising similar questions to do with freedom of speech was Chris Rock's hosting of the Oscars. Yeah. There were a couple of specific moments that sometimes raised eyebrows and sometimes more in terms of uh, what he said and, and, and the way he chose to, to say it. Um, so uh, at one point in his introduction, he addressed the, the diversity question, the fact that the, fact that the, the nomination list was, was almost entirely white, and he spoke about that somehow being progress because uh, black people are not having to protest about lynching and raping and instead are now protesting about being nominated for Best, best Actor. Um, and he got criticised quite a lot for that line. Yes. Um, how do you feel about, about that? It's interesting. I mean, on the one hand, he he was calling... He was conjuring up history mm. in order to say things are different now. Mm. Um, but on the other hand, a lot of people who 
who rejected his position mm. were saying, well, look at Donald Trump mm. using this violent rhetoric mm. to talk about people who aren't white. Mm. Um, you know, are things really that different? Are we so mm. far removed? Mm. Um, there was also definitely criticism because it seemed insensitive. Okay. Um, and it seemed to to belittle or make light of the very real history of violence against African Americans in the United States. It also undermined the legitimacy of the of challenging the academy for being so white. Yeah. You know, somehow that seemed to be less important a form of protest than Yes. than the protest of these other people in another time who were oppressed more. Yes, exactly and that um you know, it's progress that that we're now talking about the Academy being a white organization. Mm. Um, and of course, you know, Foucault and, and other theorists and mm. philosophers of, of the modern state talk about epistemic violence mm. and, and the Academy's insistence on maintaining its status quo, mm. um, whether that is in the form of, mm. of preferencing... Mm whiteness mm, yeah. or in the form of paying women less yes. or um, in the form of continuing to green light projects that perpetuate seriously problematic racist stereotypes, mm, mm. that that is violence. Mm. That is epistemic mm. violence. And just because people aren't being raped or lynched mm, mm. doesn't mean that it doesn't mm. do damage mm. and have an impact on mm. how people are able to live their lives. Mm. So it denied... Mm. It denied that aspect of yeah. of the damage. There, there was also another example of denying the denying the both the prejudice and the violence with which the the prejudice is is articulated uh, when he spoke about sexism. Yes, and um, talking about and, and he had a line about why women are asked what they wear because they wear different things, and men just wear suits, um, which. Even the humor of it wasn't quite clear. wasn't quite clear what he was trying to say, but the the effect that had was was identifying a particular phenomenon which many many women experience as sexism, and as a man, Chris Rock turns to them and says, "Your experience of it as sexism is not valid." Yeah, it's not actually sexism. Yes, which is discursively a very similar strategy because it is it is taking one particular example of prejudice one particular example of oppression and silencing it undermining it by comparing it to another example of oppression which is seen to be worse yes you are you know you think you are badly off there are other people who are worse off than you which is a very common strategy right it is a very common strategy to silence protest Yes, absolutely. And of course, the um, the Ask Her More campaign, mm. which is internal to Hollywood, mm. um, you know, pushed forward by many women mm. in who work in, in Hollywood, in the entertainment industry. Mm. Um, you know, it, people have made it many years of their work and have invested time and energy and money um, into forwarding mm. these kind of campaigns. Mm. And um, it was 
it was a bit odd. Yeah. Especially given that some of his some of his stuff yeah. hit the mark a little bit better. Yeah. Um, some of the the comments about Hollywood being sorority racist yeah. and um, tapping into you know this story about about talking to the president of the United States who is a black man yeah. about how Hollywood is full of really nice white people yeah. who don't hire black people. Yes. Um, you know, those kinds of stories rang a bit more true. Mm. Um, so we don't want to totally no. tear apart no. Chris Rock, um, especially because he, he got up on stage at the Oscars and he said to a room full of white people, you're racist. Mm. Um, but the, the, comments about women mm. and then of course the skit with the Asian kids mm. the Asian children mm. tying into stereotypes mm. about um, Asians in the United States mm. definitely missed the mark um, but you you talked about how that that particular bit mm. um, was critiqued a bit more widely mm. and a bit more effectively mm. because there was already the scope for critiquing race um, in the context of this year's Oscars yes. anyway. Yeah. Um, and it was important that it was critiqued. It was, yes. it definitely was tone deaf, um, and shouldn't have been in there, mm. but the bits about, about women and, and the comments about Jada Pinkett Smith yes. were kind of left, left unchecked a yes. bit more. Yes. Um, but they were off putting and they and, weren't. And, and it's, it's again, the, the similar strategy of, silencing a particular marginalized group by claiming for yourself or claiming on behalf of someone else a bigger, more fundamental marginalization. And it reminds me a little bit, we mentioned this at the start, of some of the debates that are happening within, not just, but for the moment I'm thinking specifically within British feminism at the moment, yeah. or feminism in Britain rather, where uh, you have various forms or strands of thinking within a, a broad feminist uh, movement about how to, whether or not to include trans women. Um, and one of the ways in which what we might call the TERFs, right, trans-exclusionary radical feminists, mm -hmm. people like Jermaine Greer, people like Julie Bendel, I don't think they particularly like the term TERFs, but that's the term that's been that's been used, uh, reject the validity of trans women and their claim to be women by claiming on behalf of cis women a greater form of victimhood. Yes. That trans women who are not really women but, are men, but who are actually men can't experience. So the, the line being trans women are really men who cannot understand patriarchy because they haven't experienced misogyny yeah. in the way that cis women have. Except, of course, if, whether or not we accept trans women's claim to be women, all the statistics show, you know, levels of violence, levels of self-harm and suicide, levels of mental health problems among trans people are huge, much, much, much higher than yeah. than this kind of visible effect of violence on cis women. Yes. And it's, again, using 
the freedom of using freedom of speech as a discursive strategy in order to silence someone else who is objectively within great big scare quotes more marginalized than you are yeah yes that it, it one thing i've noticed about um not just this particular this particular um context mm of transphobic feminism mm. but wider discourses in, in feminism and um, anti-feminists um, there is a there's a denial of some of the more kind of basic fundamental evidence mm. the statistics the life stories mm. that I mean what we would call the raw data mm. Um, mm. as academics mm. there's a denial of that mm. um, and a laying over it mm. of a more nebulous, ambiguous, less evidence-based ideology mm. of, but patriarchy oppresses mm. and patriarchy oppresses us more. Patriarchy mm. doesn't oppress you mm. when, I mean, fine. Okay. Whatever. Leave that. But for trans women on a day-to-day -day basis, mm. it is extremely dangerous mm. and difficult and and the the evidence base mm. is set aside and then and this is all justified mm. by saying mm. but i have a right to say whatever i want yes i have a right to say this mm. um leaving aside the nuances and complexities of mm. of the data mm. this reminds me quite a lot of uh, the case of Kate Smothwaite, who's a radical, self-identified radical feminist comedian. Yes. And she was going to do a gig as a comedian in Goldsmiths College in London. And there was apparently some possibility that this gig would have been, would have faced protests by students about her position about sex work and trans women and in response to the possibility of this protest she decided not to go ahead with the gig and then she has since written and spoken repeatedly including doing a whole other comedy gig about her freedom of expression and the fact that her gig was silenced through these protests which in a very odd way given presumably she would not agree with Donald Trump on much of anything, is exactly the same discursive strategy, where you do something to generate protests, and then you stop yourself from speaking, citing the protests as the reason for your silencing, and then complain about your the curtailing of your freedom of speech. Yes. What's interesting, you mentioned um, you mentioned this when we were discussing this before. There's a there's a a group of of well established British feminists who've been a part of the feminist circle in the UK for decades, yes. who take a similar stance on trans women and they have often been 
called upon to re-examine their views or just to stop publishing articles with offensive terms about trans women and to be more careful about the language that they use. And they often, they have access to a regular or semi-regular column in a uh, left-wing newspaper like The Guardian, or they have um, open-ended contracts with publishing companies and so are writing books regularly. And they use these platforms, um, quite powerful platforms, certainly platforms that you and I don't have, to proclaim the fact that their platform has been denied. Yes. And this is a this is a trend to an extent. Yes, and it's it's picking up and critiquing a form of protest which in different circumstances they have endorsed in the past, which is that of no platforming. In other words, I do not agree with what you have to say. I choose not to listen to you. You are free to say it wherever you want to. It is just that on this stage where I am responsible for organizing the event or where I am speaking, I will not share a platform with you. Now, that is not an attack on freedom of speech. It is just an exercise of my freedom not to listen to you. Yes. And again and again, people like Jamin Greer and Julie Bendel and Kate Smothwaite, and in a very, very different way, Donald Trump, is confusing no platforming with an attack of, on freedom of speech because none of these people at any point have been silenced. As you said, they have access to both economic and social capital which allows them to have their voice heard in ways that very few other people can manage. Yes, and the reason we're talking about this, the reason that this is a debate is because they are using their platforms yes. to bring up this idea that their freedom of speech is being impinged upon. Um, And, you know, for all intents and purposes, they might very well believe that it is, Mm. um, that they are being denied the freedom to speak. What, of course, strikes me as interesting is that many of these many of these people are quite well-educated. Yes. Certainly in various aspects of philosophy mm. and history. Yes. And so the the original purpose of freedom of speech can't be lost on all of them. Yes. Um, and it makes me wonder, just as you ask, how useful mm. is the concept of freedom of speech in terms of protecting the liberty mm the civil liberties Mm. of citizens. And it's interesting as well, um, Sarah Ahmed, who's a very, very favorite theorist of ours and who runs a a fantastic blog called Feminist Killjoys, she has written forcefully about this story uh, or or the series of stories. And one of the points she raises, which is um, very, very um, important, is that in most of these claims of having your freedom of speech being attacked, the the attacker is never specified. Yeah. So Sarah Ahmed says, the, the, this, she's talking about one particular letter in The Guardian, says, this letter works to create false impressions implying that critical feminists are being silenced and oppressed by some 
relatively unspecified others. We need to specify who these others are. The politics of the letter is about the politics of this who. And it's it strikes me that if we are trying to look at it from the other point of view, from German Greer and Kate Mothwaite and, and Julie Bendel, then perhaps freedom of speech as a discursive concept works for them because if they are looking at a trans woman and seeing that trans woman as a man, then I guess they can convince themselves that they are looking at someone who represents the patriarchal nation state by virtue of being a man. Yeah, in their conception. In their conception. And of course, therefore, they cannot see the violence that they're doing. Yeah. In rejecting a trans woman's claim to not be a man. And once you accept that trans woman's claim not to be a man, then you cannot simplistically identify them with a statist patriarchy. And the freedom of speech as a, as a concept gets unmoored from its its original meaning of speaking truth to power, speaking truth to the state. Yeah. So it it's in that rec- the recognition or the misrecognition of this other and that other's position vis-a-vis the state. Yes. They see themselves as being subordinate to the state or in a position of vulnerability Mm. next to the state. Um, When in fact, trans women have a very different relationship to the state. And again, it's it's this really frustrating and to my mind completely unproductive race to the bottom yeah who who is the most marginalized and unless unless you can convince me that there is no one more marginalized than you then your marginalization has no meaning which is both in intent and in effect a really conservative thought Yes. Because all it is doing is silencing action and undermining any kind of cross-identity cross category solidarity. Yes. Because the argument isn't, I am a, a man of colour, you are a cis woman, this other person is trans. We all experience prejudice in different ways. But instead of trying to figure out who has it worst why don't we come together and fight the prejudices that we all experience? And as soon as you move away from that model of solidarity to a model of, I will not listen to you because I do not recognize your victimhood, it all falls apart. Yes, you just end up reinforcing the violence of the top. Yes. It's interesting as well, The we ha- we do have theoretical terms to try and talk about some of some of this how this works um i'm thinking of intersectionality which mm. is a term that you and i talk about mm. quite a bit and it the term was extremely useful mm. when it was first introduced because it completely changed the 
the paradigm in academic feminist philosophy about how identities work, particularly for women of color. Yes. Because it changed the way that women of color, changed the way that we articulate the ways that women of color experience the multiple identities that they have, that they live in, Mm. um, and how that shapes their experience in the world. Mm. And it was extremely important at the time because Mm. the the theories that that we had Mm. were not particularly useful. Um, Certainly not in in the 1980s and 90s. Mm. Um, But intersectionality and identity politics more broadly have have sometimes hit a wall here when we when we talk about freedom of speech because it seems in a lot of ways that the the multiple positions mm. are not speaking in the same realm they're not speaking mm. in the same discursive world the terms that are getting used and the the framing of of the arguments mm. don't match up mm. they they talk past each other or they work in such a mm. way as to just reproduce norms and values mm. without causing any radical change. So it ends up being, and this is, you know, in the same way that, that the ideal of freedom of speech has become so difficult mm. to disentangle from the power of the state versus its, its true intent, its true purpose. Um, it's difficult to talk about identities and how how identities that are attached to certain kinds yeah. of of victimhood mm. or you know to use other terms that that people often use survivorhood mm. um, how an individual mm. operates in relation to we talked about with freedom of speech to the state mm. but there are so many other Layers, and this is a question. I mean, mm. in geography, we we deal with scale. The question mm. of scale is the most important in a lot of cases for us, and this is an issue of scale here. That that your freedom of speech works in different ways at different scales, mm. and so just as you and I and everyone mm. we know operates in a complex set of communities mm. where we have individual identities that are constituted by and also Mm. contribute to group identities Mm. um and communities and then and then we move upwards in this according to scale until Mm. we hit the state Mm. or beyond that the region or Mm. the international community and Mm. these these radical ideals and Mm. theoretical concepts like freedom of speech or intersectionality don't translate cleanly mm. across the scales. Yes. They don't work to connect the individual mm. to all the various kind of multi-scalar yeah. communities that mm. they operate in. Mm. And it's not just it's not just, you know, communities and and shared identities. Mm. It's also regional and it's spatial mm. about where we live and where we're situated yes. and how we move about. So, you know, identities as as a migrant mm. versus versus someone who stays in their community their whole life. You know, these they all work together in complex ways, and mm. I don't think we have mm. a theory mm. or a philosophy that helps us deal with this as effectively as we might like, mm. which is why we're not citing any philosophy today. Yeah. 
and that's that's the problem with with the way freedom of speech has been has been reduced or co-opted into distinctly conservative forces so or conservative tropes so you know the the idea that the army is out there fighting to defend your freedom of speech well that's that's not why freedom of speech mattered that's not why why it it came into existence as an inalienable right yeah um and the army is certainly not fighting for individual freedoms of speech um depending on who that individual is and i guess the problem with freedom of speech as a notion and perhaps why from the progressive side it it might be time to think of another way of conceiving this is that you know to to quote our armit again it's the politics of who you know who is doing the speaking and the problem with freedom of speech is that as a discourse as an idea is that it assumes that all of the various who's have the same access to speech yes and that all speech acts at a basic level yeah. are equal yes in terms of the power that they wield um which is a very old conservative idea mm. of democracy um certainly one that that very few of the scholars we we talk about mm. here would endorse i think mm. yes um and it denies it denies the more complicated political relationships mm. that people have that citizens and subjects have to one another mm. and how our relationship to the state is mm. filtered through relations with one another mm. um it's not as clear cut yes here no. no it's not i think that's it for today that's it that's it for today i think um we didn't have any answers but then yeah, we can never have to yeah. have answers we don't claim to have we answers we don't claim to have answers um thanks for listening um as usual let us know what you think tweet at us comment on facebook on our soundcloud page um if you get your podcasts through itunes then rate and review us on itunes um we uh, have started getting ideas and suggestions and comments and we are acting on them um and we are very grateful for all of that yes and see you next week bye bye we hope you enjoyed this episode i have been hanna fitzpatrick and i have been anindya vichardri you can contact me on twitter at dr h fitz and me at dr anindya r our music was provided by the agrarians and this has been the state of the theory Thank you. Well, well, well.